Hello, soccer everyday listeners. Alex Abnos here. One quick note before we start today. I'm really excited to say that NWSL scores, schedules, stats, standings, teams, and more are now available in the Athletic app and on desktop. Go check it out and update your app if you haven't already. Okay, on to the show. A long, long journey is finally at its end. The United States men's and women's national teams have agreed to a first-of-its-kind joint collective bargaining agreement, one which guarantees equal pay for both teams. Meg Linehan has covered this story very closely since the very beginning, and she joins the show today to reflect on all that's happened over the course of this story and what could come next. From The Athletic, I'm Alex Abnos, and this is Soccer Every Day for Thursday, May 19th. The U.S. women and the U.S. men's national teams, the senior national teams, have signed a new joint CBA, which guarantees equal pay between both uh, teams. This is obviously huge news. It's been a long time in the making, and right there along the ride for a lot of it has been Meg Linehan. She is here today on the show, and Meg, it has been... A little over six years since the U.S. Women's National Team first filed their EEOC complaint uh, for equal pay. Uh, this saga has been going on more or less in the background. Think of all the stuff that's happened in U.S. soccer and soccer in general over that time. This has been happening in the background. It's taken a lot of different forms. You joined us, uh, The Athletic, in uh, 2019, early 2000. Uh, early 2019, so you've been covering it full-time for us for about half the time that it's been a thing. As you look back on the whole process that got us here to this moment, what stands out to you? The fact that we're talking about it right now, that it's done, honestly, (laughs) because, you know, I was on the first conference call for the EEOC complaint, listening to the players talk about this. I joined The Athletic, I mean, like a month after they had filed the lawsuit against U.S. soccer, right? And living through kind of the back and forth of 2019, failed mediations. Um, I, I mean, I, I think one of the big moments that really stands out is basically the, the same day that the pandemic was starting in this country, the players are heading out to the field as a united front in their inside-out shirts, right? Like, there have right. been so many kind of big moments to this. Finally, in February, we got the settlement on the lawsuit, which was completely contingent upon CBA happening. Today, we get the news of the CBA. And I think it is really interesting now that we get to finally think about the question of now what happens? What happens when they're working together? What a concept. Like, we (laughs) we don't even really know what this is going to look like, because it has been so long where U.S. soccer has been fighting this optics battle against one of its own national teams. And also, to be fair, the men were hanging out without a new contract for for years. So Cindy Parlo Cohn talked to Sam and I about this concept of they have labor peace through 2028. They have this kind of incentive for both teams to perform because it's going to reward everyone. Everyone makes more money together. Right. And what that will unlock for U.S. soccer moving forward, and uh, it's it's going to be kind of a ride to see what happens next. Yeah, it'll be very interesting. I mean, I'm just thinking about you know when this this story has gone on longer since 
the U.S. men not qualified for the World yeah. Cup, which seemed to me like a story that was just like was always something that was being talked about. And it was going on when the U.S. women won the World Cup in 2019. I personally think very, back very to the, the equal the equal pay chance in France. Uh, that seemed like a real watershed moment for this. It's uh, it's kind of crazy to think that now we're here. Um, and in the deal itself, I don't want to get too far into the weeds because you and Sam did a really good job of that in your story for The Athletic, which will be linked in the show's description. Um, but I was reading over sort of the details such as we have them uh, at the moment uh, of, of this deal. And what struck me, and I don't know if this is just a state of the world thing or if it's a me getting so cynical that I'm surprised when things just plain work sort of thing. But this deal really does seem to kind of require a roughly equivalent level of sacrifice on the part of both both squads. And it also allows both to benefit equally. Is that sort of the overall impression you're getting? Or do you think that that one side that there was a one side had to give a little bit more in order for everybody to get the same amount at the end of the day? I do think both teams, you know, got wins out of this agreement. I think the women stand to benefit more. I mean, looking at to be fair, right, the structure is going to change for them. I I mean, we are going to have to talk about the fact that they're going to assume more risk than what they used to have with guarantee contracts and now move into this pay for play model. To be fair, they only had 16 contracts left. So there were only a handful of players benefiting from this. So for me, the main takeaway on the women's side is like, yes, they're making more money. Yes, the prize, the the World Cup prize money deal finally happened, but also they're going to get better payments just by now matching the men's structure, but they're also going to get more players paid. So like even just the amount of money being paid to the women's national team is going to increase. You know, I think the men, we don't need to get into the, to the like big discourse of the day. Right. Because I think that the men have been painted as kind of like heroes of like, Oh, they sacrifice so much in order to get this deal done. I don't really think that's the case. And I think they also stand to benefit if, FIFA prize cut money increases for the women because the women have consistently outperformed. So if suddenly we get like a giant increase in women's world cup prize money, which I mean, probably won't happen, but it could, right? Like let's say that prize money quadruples or something along those lines, they could really cash out in this system. And suddenly this narrative would be changing of all the men are giving up prize money. Right? So I think that there is, again, uh, the main takeaway for me is that the teams are now truly linked for the first time. Like we kept the lead of our story, right? Is this idea of one nation, one team, because it finally is truly the case, at least in the, the, for the men's and women's senior national teams. And just a quick recap in case, uh, in case, I don't know, you haven't been following this story at all and you're not aware of this. Uh, a big, big hurdle in these negotiations was the fact that the U.S. women operate on a, on an entirely different system than the men. For much of that team's existence, they were full-time players for the U.S. Soccer Federation, for this U.S. women's national team. Um, and so creating the CBA, along with the men, who get paid on a per-game basis, per-appearance basis, win bonuses, things like that, uh, was, was uh, certainly a hurdle. Um, you were on a call and, and spoke uh, with with players, with Mitch Purse and uh, Walker Zimmerman, along with uh, Cindy Parlacone, Becca Rue, the the head of the uh, U.S. Women's uh, Players Asso- Association. What was your uh, sort of impression of that call? You know, I would imagine that the players 
really actually everybody involved must be super, super stoked to have this in the rearview mirror done, ready to go. And now they can play soccer and, and see how it works out. Yeah. I mean, I think honestly, maybe the settlement one from February where they, they finally settled the lawsuit was a, a little more, I think the mood is a little looser, but I think what is really interesting is just, obviously it is this kind of historic day in U S soccer. I think it, it, everyone just kind of wanted to be like, Hey, we got it done. Right. Like, and I think especially for the women's national team, this has been a very, very long process. And just from my own reporting with the women's national team, they were so engaged with that process. I mean, we're talking about, you know, 50 bargaining sessions over the past, like really finally coming to the table with Cindy Parlo Cone, like a number along those lines. Players are showing up to every single one of those. And so I think there was kind of also a little bit of sense of relief of like, this has finally happened. But to be fair, I think it's also a really good day for Cindy Parlo-Cone as president of U.S. Soccer. And I think we also have to think about the fact that we might not be here if she had not been reelected in the middle of this CBA renegotiation process. Like this could have gone very sideways, very, very quickly had Carlos Cordero reassumed his role, especially considering why he left, which was because of, you know, the terrible court filings that claim that women's players don't perform the same work as the men. And that is a gross oversimplification of what happened there. Yes. You know, I I think it really was kind of a deserved victory lap on a lot of fronts, but also with the the full understanding, Cindy Parlow concept saying, this doesn't finish the work of rebuilding the trust that we need to do. And there's still a lot of work ahead and everyone is kind of thinking about, okay, can we push FIFA? And, and now I think, you know, Walker Zimmerman had that quote in the, the press release of the men have a role to play there. And I think it's going to be really, really interesting to see not just how they do that this World Cup in 2022, but thinking about the U.S. being one of the three no- nations hosting the World Cup in 2026. That could be a huge, huge platform for the men to really push FIFA think about what they're doing in 2027 and i'm very curious to see if they're going to take full advantage of it this episode is brought to you by Michelob ultra the official beer sponsor of the nba want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob ultra courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive nba prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an nba game and more head over to michelobultra.com slash courtside to learn more I'm also curious before you go, Meg, about some of the ripple effects we talked about. You meant you hinted at a couple of them. I can't remember which player it was, if it was Walker or Mitch Purse that said that they want double headers, which the, the, the prospect of that is honestly very exciting from somebody that likes two for one deals, basically. Um, uh, but in addition to that, just the ripple effects of the game and p- particularly the professional game in this country and particularly for the NWSL, because as you said, the U.S. women's national team has to pretty much entirely change their structure, which means that for the top earners in women's soccer, the burden of compensation, who's actually going to pay them the money you would think uh, you would think would go to the top players in their sport now falls on the professional league. This is, of course, how it works in the men uh, on the men's side for, for some time. Is the NWSL ready to sort of occupy that space uh, at the moment? Do you think they will be in the future? Like what's what's next there? Because 
last I checked that the salaries in NWSL are okay for some people, uh, but not so good for others. Yeah, I mean, I, I still think top earners for the U.S. Women's National Team are going to be making more money via the national team than they will the NWSL. I think we have generally seen the trend of national teamers at least earning six-figure contracts within the NWSL. But the NWSL has been preparing for this moment basically for the past three years. Players had already been told you're signing directly with NWSL clubs as of December, right? Like it's not new as of Wednesday that U.S. soccer is not going to pay NWSL salaries anymore. So to see the panic around that was honestly a little fascinating because I was like, we've, that's fine. Like you don't even have to (laughs) think about that. That's not the problem. I think a, the NWSL has to stand on its own from the Federation. And that's been goal number one this entire time. B, obviously the growth has been pretty pretty rapid on the NWSL's front over the past couple of years. We saw Trinity Rodman hit that 1.1 million contract over four years. So like there is progress there. But at the same time, you don't get players willing to assume this risk with the U.S. Women's National Team, CBA, and the, the change in structure without that increased growth in the NWSL and without also a lot of work that they did behind the scenes to ensure that the NWSLPA was in a strong position to negotiate their CBA, right? There was real work done across both sides of this to make sure that players were going to be in the best possible position within the league to then say, okay, we can start trusting that we're going to get paid there and now, and be able to like live. Right. Right. And, and, and assume more risk by saying, okay, we're going to go down to just appearances, you know, camp call-ups, that sort of thing. So yeah, without NWSL being in a much stronger position right now, I don't think the players are going to quite, you know, they kept saying, Becky Sauerbrunn has been very clear. We never got this offer from U.S. soccer before. And that's why we have always prioritized different things. And so there's a lot of a lot of pieces that have to come together for today to happen, but it doesn't happen without a lot of work going into the NWSL side of things as well. Maybe that explains why it took so long. <laughs> I, I will say like nothing moves that quickly in this world, but it is it is a very, very nice day, I will say. It is. Well, Meg, thank you so much for all your work covering the equal pay fight. And now that we've gotten here, I'm looking forward to reading more stories about what it looks like. Soccer? In practice. Soccer and, and, and maybe some soccer every now and again. That might be interesting to, to, to write about, I'm sure. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Alex. Thank you so much to Meg for that chat. Before we go, a TV guide for today. All times are Eastern as usual, and it's a big day, bigger than you might think for a spring Thursday. In the Premier League, we have three games, a 2.45 Everton versus Crystal Palace, and at 3 p.m. Aston Villa versus Burnley. Everton Crystal Palace is on USA Network in the United States, and Villa Burnley is on Peacock. Those are two, the two best games of the day in uh, the Premier League because Everton and Burnley both really, really need points in order to... Uh, get clear of the relegation zone or maybe give themselves a little bit more hope on the final day. Uh, There is also Chelsea versus Leicester City happening at 3 p.m. on Peacock, but if you're a neutral, do not be fooled by the slightly more recognizable club names. That game is pretty much meaningless. Leicester City is exactly where they're going to be, and Chelsea has already secured Champions League soccer for next season. 
in Germany at 2.30 p.m., Hertha Berlin play Hamburg, Hamburger SV, as they're known over there. Uh, this is a relegation playoff, which is sort of an unfamiliar concept in many leagues and certainly in the United States. Hertha is already in the Bundesliga, but they finished third from bottom. Hamburg finished third from top in the second Bundesliga. So they play each other, and whoever wins over two legs goes to the Bundesliga or stays there if Hertha happens to win. This is the leg one of their two-leg matchup. Again, that's at 2.30 p.m. on ESPN+. And then later tonight, you have some options. Uh, there's Copa Libertadores action, 6 p.m. Atletico Mineiro versus Independiente del Valle. At 8 p.m., River Plate versus Colo Colo, and at 10 p.m., Deportivo Cali versus Always Ready. All of those are on BN Sports. And then in Liga Emekis, we're into the semifinals of the Liguilla. America versus Pachuca. Really, really good game because Pachuca's had a great season. Uh, that's at 9 p.m. on 2-day NA. The winner of that one plays either Tigres or Atlas. But once again, we're in leg one of this. So they have to play two games, and we'll see what happens in those ones. This show is produced by Mike Zimmerman with help from John Hayes. You can get ad-free versions of the show by subscribing to The Athletic, and you can subscribe for $1 a month for six months by going to theathletic.com slash soccer every day. Thank you so much for listening, and happy soccer to you all.